0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Okay, uh, if you've got a Bible, turn me to Colossians chapter 1. We are eight weeks in a series through the book of Colossians, and uh, we will be uh, in verses 21, 22, and 23 this morning, as Taryn already read for us. If you're new here, I'll introduce myself. My name's Jamin. I am uh, one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church, and we're just so grateful. I don't know uh, what your life is like right now or what kind of what brought you in here today, uh, but we're just so grateful that you are here. Uh, 21, 22, and 23 marks somewhat of a turn in the book of uh, Colossians, a turn really from where we have uh, been, and I'll explain a little bit of that as we go. But really, there's just something so simple about the way these passages are, uh, this passage is laid out, something very simple about uh, the way that it shows the story and the movement of the story of every single believer. And so what you'll see, if you're a believer in Jesus, what you'll see in these passages is, is your story in these three verses. And what I see when I read it is my story. One of the reasons why I asked Taryn to come to share, uh, one is just because I want you to know her and want you to know who she is as someone who leads uh, in this church. We are who we are because of uh, her gifts of leadership and her gifts of teaching. So I just want you to know uh, that she serves us in that way, but mostly to be able to share her story as a way of highlighting that every single uh, a movement of God in the life of someone, bringing them from death to life and then sustaining them as they go kind of falls into this pattern. And so let me read it for us and then I will uh, set up uh, how we are gonna to look at it this morning. 21 says this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." If the TV is on in our house, it's usually on uh, one or two, uh, one of three shows or one of three kind of uh, things. It's either uh, on Dallas sports teams, which means we are either really happy or we're really disappointed, right? Uh, Or it's on if the kids are watching, uh, they're watching mostly Dude Perfect. And by the kids, I mean me and the kids are sitting there watching that together. Or if it's not on either of those, it's on HGTV. Anybody testify? Okay, Uh, so we'll be watching that, and and honestly, it's something that most of our uh, family actually enjoys watching together, and and so really, uh, the shows that we are drawn to, the ones that we love most, are the ones that have some sort of like remodel to them, some sort of like home renovation, which is basically every show on HGTV, but they follow uh, this this flow, like the thing that is uh, kind of, the show is built on, is that early on in the show, you get this moment of contrast. You get this moment where it's like this family, this couple's trying to buy a house, and you get these two pictures held up next to each other, and they're contrasting pictures. It's the picture of the house as it is, with all of its gross carpet, and it's really like choppy layout, and as it is, it's just kind of um, uh, disappointing, but, but it has potential in it, and that's the other picture. The other picture is what the house could be. And so what they'll do is they'll bring in like a video of here's what we're going to do. We're going to take down this wall and we're going to put in these kind of countertops in the kitchen and we're going to open it up. And so uh, after that, most of the show is the work in between that kind of contrast. And there's always drama involved in it. There's always like you always pay 50,000 more than what you budgeted every single house. Right. But it ends, it builds to the second contrast. And that is the contrast between the the before and after, the house as it was, and then the house as it is now. And they always do that. They always show you the pictures, right, uh, of what it used to look like. And then six months into the project, or maybe 10 weeks into the project, it's finally finished. And it's this thing that is really beautiful and that you would actually want to uh, live in, right? And so it's contrast and it's work. I said that because that's the lens through which we see verses 21, 22, and 23. Um, This is part of the letter, the letter that Paul wrote to Colossi, called the propitio. If you wrote a letter in the first century, whether you were a New Testament author writing a letter or just some random guy writing a letter, you followed a certain flow. You started with an introduction, you did thanksgiving, you did maybe praise, or maybe some sort of prayer, right, depending on why you were writing, and all of that's introduction, and we've seen that As we've been going through the last seven weeks, we've seen an introduction, we've seen thanksgiving and prayer, and then even the song that we were in for so long, 15 through 20, is still part of Paul's introduction. But here, these verses is what's called the propitio, and the propitio is the reason the letter is written. If you are an English major or an English teacher, it's the thesis statement. It's the why behind the writing. And so in the why, you get this plea, you get this appeal uh, that that is driving the whole reason why the letter was written in the first place. So Paul sits down in a prison cell 2,000 years ago. And he, uh, with a scribe inspired by God, writes this letter to this church in Colossae, and inspired by God, writes this letter to us 2,000 years later to say what he's going to say in 21, 22, and 23. And here's what he does. He's going to make this plea, but what he does in this thesis, in this propitio, is he holds up these two contrasts. He holds up these two sets of of pictures and then he points to the work that takes place in between the contrast that he might in verse 23 just simply make this plea to you and to me would you continue in the faith and would you remain stable and steadfast don't shift away from the hope that you have in the gospel so i want us to see each of these contrasts see who's at work in the contrast that the plea of the book would fall on us the way that it should Here's the first contrast. There is a contrast in these passages over your life between who you were and who you are now. It's this picture of who you were and then now who you are. In 21, it says this, and you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds there's this three-part movement to the who you were and the who I was. It ends with the evil deeds that come out of our life, but it starts with this reality that we are alienated from God. And so the uh, evil deeds and the hostility grows out of this reality that we are alienated. Now that word might not be the most helpful word because it simply means to be an alien. And when I hear that word, uh, I automatically think of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. I don't think uh, of what the, the Bible intended us to think of here. In the first century, alien and just meant that where you are is not your home. The, sp- the, the space that you occupy is not the place that your heart actually longs for. Maybe a more helpful concept is that we are all born homeless. We are born separated from God, desiring to be at home with God, but we're not. And so you've felt this just in ordinary life. You know what that kind of estrangement feels like, even just practically. I felt it uh, last Monday. Last Sunday, I took a quick, it was less than 24-hour trip right after church. I flew out uh, to another city and then woke up Monday morning, did some teaching, and then back to the airport. And my flight was supposed to leave the airport at noon. So we board like a little after 11.15, and we sit there, and we sit there, and then 12 comes and goes, and we're still sitting there. And an hour later it comes and goes, and we're still sitting there, and I'm thinking in my mind, please don't be canceled. This always happens to me. I just want to get home. And finally the pilot comes on the system and says this. He says, Sometimes I'm the guy that gets to give good news. And my spirits lifted. He chuckled a bit. I'm like, okay, we're gonna go home. And he said, But today, all I have is bad news. The flight's canceled. And I was frustrated. I thought, my first thought actually was this: man, dude if this is how you give bad news, I'm really glad you're a pilot and not a doctor, right? There's some things (laughs) I needed to work through. So we deplane and in my mind, I just shift to this uh, just thought process of how am I going to get home? So if this airline can't get me on a later flight, then I'll try to book with another airline. And if I can't do that, maybe it's worth it to just rent a car. That way I can get home because what I didn't want is I didn't want to stay where I was. I did like this airport was not my home. That city was not my home. I didn't want to stay another night in it. I wanted to be home where my people are. And that's where I'm supposed to be. That's where I'm expected to be. And so we felt that you've had some sort of experience like that. Maybe it's not a place that you wanted to be. Maybe it's people you wanted to be with. But even like even uh, on vacation, as good as it might be, there comes a time if you're there long enough where you just begin to yearn to be home and long to be home and that ache For that place, whatever home is, that ache is just a glimpse of the spiritual reality of who we are before Jesus. It's an ache of the spiritual reality that we are all born into this world, longing for home with God, longing for the God that we were made for, but we're alienated from him. We are homeless without him. And then here's what happens. It says, from alienation, what is also true about all of us is that we're hostile to God. That word means enemy. It means we're opposed to God. And what it means is not just in our thoughts, but in our desires. And so would you see this with me? We are created for home with God, but at the same time, enemies of God and opposed to God, which means while he is what we need and he is where we want to be, we spend our lives trying to find a home in things that are not God. Trying to make, uh, trying to create this sense of satisfaction and belonging. Instead of returning to him, we try to find our way home in things that are just not him. And we treat those as if they are God. And it's foolishness. So all the evil of our lives grows out of that. And it's as, it's as silly as me wanting to get home to Plano, booking a flight to Portland, and believing all the while I'm getting where I want to go while I'm really going further and further away. That's You alienated, hostile among who you were, who I was, far from God. It's why uh, when Jesus tells a story about salvation, maybe the most famous story he tells about salvation is about what? A father, a home, and two sons who leave home. So there's a younger brother who leaves the father and goes away to the far country, and he tries to make a home in the far country. And that looks like pleasure. That looks like consuming all that he can consume. And that looks like possessing all that he can possess. And just like what happens in all of us, that home comes crashing down. He tried to make a home away from the father, and that home failed to be where his heart most wanted to be. What I love about that story, especially for a room like this, is that it's not the only way to run away from home. It's not the only way that we see the alienation in our lives. You've got a son who goes really far and indulges in all the world has to offer. You have an older son who leaves home. He goes out to the porch. He's still far from God. He's still far from home. And here's what that means. It means that uh, there is a way to try to make a home without God that is marked by uh, indulgence and addiction and all those kinds of things. There's also a way to leave home that is marked by accumulating praise and feeling justified and being better than others. And my home is my performance. And my home is my religious works. And maybe some in the room can't relate with the rebellion of the younger brother, but you can relate with the pride of the older brother. And here's what the Bible wants us to know. You can make out a home out of unrighteousness And you can make a home out of self-righteousness, both lives far from God, both alienated from God. And that is the state, the condition that we are all born in. And without Jesus, the best we can hope for is that the older we get, the things that we find our home in are more culturally acceptable, but they don't bring us any closer to him. Now, now, that's not who you are. That's who you were. It's the one part of the first contrast. The before picture is someone who is far from God. And then here's the now picture. Who you were, who you are. It says, but now he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You've been brought home to him. You've been brought back to God by Jesus. It says this, that he is, uh, that, that we have been brought reconciled from alienation into this homecoming. And here's the question we ask about the contrast. Who does that work? Super important question. Who does the homecoming work of bringing you from who you were to who you are? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's why when he is on the cross, he says a lot of things from the cross. When he talks to God, he says, Father, and he addresses him as Father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what to do. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But when he quotes the psalm, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of is temporarily estranged from, alienated from, homeless without the Father, that you and I, far from him, might be brought near by the blood of the cross, that he makes peace by the blood of the cross. And so what that means, my friend, is that who we were was homeless without him. Who we are now is hidden in Christ, which means that we are as close and as loved and as accepted and as at home with God as Jesus is. That's really good news, Let me press on something. Uh, There is a unique challenge, and I even feel it, like in the moment I feel it. There is a unique challenge in a religious culture to holding up this contrast. The challenge is that many of us, we see the contrast of the gospel, that this is who you were and this is who you are now, and we react to that by looking at that before and saying, no, that's never who I was. So we would come to church and do the Bible studies and sing the song and amen at godly values, depending on which one they are. But to hear alienated, hostile, engaged in evil deeds, the impulse in a religious culture is, no, that was never me. I know people like that. That's not me. And what we always do, my friend, if that's us, if that's you, is we always, what it reveals is we take the contrast the Bible holds up in front of us, the who you were, who you are contrast, and we replace it with one of our own, and it always is one that makes us less responsible and less at fault and makes us in less need of Jesus than we actually are. And so look, maybe for me it's, okay, the contrast is not who I was, evil, hostile, and who I am because of Jesus. No, the contrast is somebody who used to have little and now I have a lot. And you fill that in however you want. I used to have a little bit of money and now I have a lot of bit of money. I used to have a little bit of morals and now I have a lot of bit of morals. I used to have a little bit of friends and now I have a lot of friends. And so that's the contrast of my life where I, where I used to lack and now I have because I pulled myself up because I did it on my own, it was my own efforts that got me from who I was to who I am now. And what that means is that makes my achievements my God and it makes self-sufficiency my savior. Or, no, the contrast is not who I was and who I am because of Jesus, the contrast is between who I am because of what's been done to me and who I would be if that had never happened meaning who I am because of what's been done to me and who I would be if I had never had the parents I had or who I would be if I'd had never had the problems I didn't ask for. And I would be okay in that, my friend, that makes your wounds your God and blame shifting your savior. Or the contrast is not who I was, uh, evil, hostile, who I am because of Jesus. The contrast is between someone who's actually lived better than most, and all the other people around me. The contrast is between someone uh, who uh, doesn't act like me and doesn't look like me and who I really am, and so they may need Jesus, but all I need is a little advice, and that's why I'm here. All I need is a little less stress, and that's why I'm here. All I need is maybe a, a little more people in my life or in charge of my life who are like me, and if that's the contrast, that makes me God. And gods don't need a savior. In the tell-tale sign that I have replaced the contrast that God puts in front of me with one of my own is that my life is filled with entitlement and my life lacks gratitude. You know why? Because I'm not going to be very grateful for a savior I believe I needed less than everyone else. I love you. And so what I need us to know is that there are simply no exceptions to the who you were reality. This is all of us. This is all of us comes out of our lives maybe in different ways, but all of us, the most fundamental problem of my life is not out there, it's in here. We've said this for years. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. I was alienated from God, opposed to God with no hope or ability to return to him, and so my only shot was Jesus and what he does in his love as he does the work in the, between the pictures. He does the work in the contrast, taking you from who you were to who you are as one who is loved and known. And like we said last week, it pleased him to make peace. And he's done that. If you're a Christian, he's done that for you. How good is he to do the work that we could not do for ourselves? How good is he to do the work that we could not do for ourselves? Here's the second contrast. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, hear me, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. The other contrast is the contrast between who you were and who you will be. So, who you were, alienated, hostile, and we've done the work there. Who you will be, did you hear these words? Who you will be is holy. Who you will be is blameless. Who you will be is above reproach. There's two ideas in all of those words. There's the idea that you will be pure, spotless, and unblemished, like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and you will be above reproach. It means not just nobody will accuse you, you will be unaccusable, you'll be innocent. So one day, because of the work of Jesus, your life and my life will be marked by complete purity and complete innocence. The contrast is one who is homeless without God and one who will be as holy as Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. So let me make a point that just shouldn't be surprising. I'm not there yet, and you're not there yet. Look, uh, the reality is this, that in Jesus, we are not who we were, but friends right now in the present, we're not yet who we will be. This is the other contrast, who you were and you're not that anymore, who you will be and you're not yet there. And so look, where we find ourselves right now is not homeless like I once was, but not as holy as I one day will be. Now there's an important question to answer. You could say, Jamin, isn't it true that before God, I'm already there? Like, isn't it true that before God I'm holy and blameless and innocent and pure? Yes. It's the difference, friends, between who I am before God positionally and who I am in practice. Like, positionally, Jamin Roller, before God, is completely loved and declared righteous, and God looks at me and sees Jesus. Jamin Roller, in practice, gets more angry than he should when his flight's canceled. To be a little less tame than that. Jamin, in practice, still tries to find home in things that are not God, still. Jamin Roller, in practice, left to my own devices without the accountability that God and his grace has put in my life, I could ruin so much. could ruin so much. You, positionally loved, known, accepted by God. In practice, tell me, we are... Uh, a month and a half away from 2020 which is just insane to say out loud but we've got about a month and a half left of this year if you were to just look back on 2019 and just look back on 2019 and, and hold these words up against your 2019 and would you say that everything that came out of you in 2019 was holy everything about you blameless nothing that could even could accuse you of no look we're not who we were not yet who we will be super important question who does the work Okay, if in the contrast of who you were to who you are, it's Jesus that's working and saving and only Jesus, but there's also this contrast between who you were and who you will be. Who's at work between those pictures? Who's at work in that contrast? There's two answers to that question. One is Jesus is at work. Jesus is, is in your life, making you holy, taking you from who you were to who you will be. In Ephesians 5, Paul says it in such a beautiful way, talking about marriage, but he interrupts this conversation about marriage to say these things about Jesus, that one day, he because he loved the church, that he is sanctifying her and cleansing her, that he might present her holy without blemish and blameless. And so that day is coming in the future, that perfect presentation. And what Jesus is doing now is he is at work in your life to get you there. He is at work in your life bringing that about. Now, it's not immediate, but it is guaranteed. Helpful illustration that Martin Luther uses to, to make this point. He says, imagine that your child is sick and real bad sick. You're concerned sick. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor examines your child, reaches in his bag, gets out medicine. He gives the medicine to your child, and immediately, immediately after your child takes the medicine, he looks and he says, he's healed. And you look at your child, who looks very sick still, and very tired still, and very weak still, and you look back at the doctor, and you say, doctor, are you sure? Because they don't look healed to me. And the doctor responds and says this, the medicine takes time, but it's working And it will work until his healing is complete. Jesus is at work in the contrast between who you were and who you will be. And the medicine is the gospel. The moment he saves you and declares you to be healed and no longer far from God and brought near and you're holy and cleansed. And you're like, Jesus, I don't look very healed. Still very blemished. And he says, no, listen, the cleansing work of the gospel takes time, but it's working and it will work until it's complete. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion, will finish it in your life. Is that hard for you to see right now? Maybe I'm the only one, it's hard sometimes for me to see. Meaning I hear that Jesus is bringing me from who I was to who I will be. He's doing this change. And, and then something clamors in my heart. Maybe something clamors in your heart. I just don't feel it. I don't see it. In fact, the more honest contrast feels like it's the contrast between, I, I don't know, not uh, who I was and who I one day will be, but it feels like the contrast is I used to be less overwhelmed and now I'm more overwhelmed. Maybe even I, I used to feel less sinful, and now I feel more. I used to be less angry, and now I'm more angry. I used to have less doubt, and now I have more doubt. I used to be more confident in God's love, and I used to be uh, you know, more disciplined in spending time with God. And, and so, Jamin, I don't know whatever this season is, but it feels more honest to say about this season, not that I'm going from homeless to holy, but it feels a bit like I'm going in the wrong direction. Anybody? Who's at work? Jesus. Jesus. What do we know about him? Just if you, if you could just recall the last five weeks, he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. By him all things are made, both visible and invisible. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, including you. He's holding you together with all the power in the world. And so could it be, Could it be that what feels like you moving backwards, what feels like a lack of change or a lack of growth, could it be that the one who holds it all together is simply using those circumstances in your life to reveal to you more of what he wants to change? Could it be that he is at work even in your failures because he wants to conform that into holiness? Friend, could it be that you're not going backwards, the medicine's going deeper, The gospel's going deeper that in his sovereignty and in his providence and in his patience and in his love, he's bringing this healing underneath the surface and underneath the pain and underneath the disappointment to make you beautiful, to make you holy. And right now, those things are just so hard to see, but to have the perspective of an eternal savior would be to look right now with confidence that if I knew all that he knows I would be confident that he's going to finish what he started. He'll finish what he started. He is at work and so are you. It's the propitio, it's the reason behind the letter is verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Jesus takes you from who you were to who you are. That's salvation. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. Jesus is taking you from who you were to who you will be. He does the work, and then he invites you to participate in that work. And you know what my job is in that? You know what your job is in that? Continue. Continue. Remain is what that word means. Stay put in the work of the gospel. Stay put in that grace. Don't leave. Don't run away from that. Now, here's the reality. He spends the rest of this letter unpacking what that means. Three full chapters unpacking what that means, and that's for us to do over the next, I don't know, five years. But (laughs) here's where we start. Here's what we can say without even going to another verse based on what's been said. What we can say is that what what it means to remain and what it means to hold on and what it means to not be sifted is believing, brother, sister, please hear me, believing that I need Jesus just as much for my present as I did for my past. There is uh, a reality that I needed him to take me from who I was to who I am. I need him no less to take me from who I was to who I will be. I needed a savior for my justification. I need a savior for my sanctification. I needed him to get me from homeless to reconciled. I need him no less to make me holy. You see, Friends, one of the great lies that plagues the Christian life that as many years as I've been walking with Jesus, it's so hard to shake. And it's the lie that I have been invited into life with Jesus by grace, but it's my job to keep me in. I am kept in by works. And if I believe that, what that means is that always leads, because there's so much at stake in my mind, it always leads to me pretending to be further along than I actually am. And I know that we've beat this drum a lot lately, but it's just so important. If there's no grace for my present, then I pretend to be further along than I am, which means this, it means I always stay a few layers above honesty. I always stay maybe just one layer above raw honesty, bringing to light that person that God wants to change. And so maybe what that means is it means that I share prayer requests about how I'm afraid of losing my job, but I don't go below. I don't go to the layer underneath and talk about how I'm currently losing a battle with lust. Maybe it means that I share with others about how hard it is to raise young kids, and it is, but I never go a layer underneath that to how I'm actually depressed and discouraged, and on my worst days, or maybe even on my best days, I fantasize about being someone else or being with someone else or living another life. In my prayers, I ask God to change things. I never go to a layer underneath that and ask God to change me, because what I know in asking him to change me is that that, means he will expose things. There are things I'll have to give up and things I have to confess. And I really believe that for most of us, it's because this, it's because we believe that if we go to that lower layer, then I'm going to be down there all by myself and I'm going to have to deal with it all by myself. And I have to clean me up all by myself, and I don't have it in me, and it's all on me. And my friend, I love you, and I need you to know that grace is already waiting for you there. Already waiting for you. Jesus, who is patient and eager to present you holy and blameless, is waiting there to do this work in you. It's what Taryn said to stand in front of a people, to stand and so boldly say, look what I found underneath the pretense and underneath the hiding when all there was was a person who was afraid and exposed, I found that Jesus met me there, the same one who met me when I was seven and saved me in a moment. A year ago this week, I read a quote In a book by an old Puritan named Richard Baxter, and it's just stuck with me. It's helped me combat so many of these struggles, and I don't know. It's not necessarily new. Maybe it's because somebody said it 500 years ago, so it feels more true, but he says this. How many mercies have I tasted since I thought I'd send away all mercies? How patiently has he stayed with me since I thought he would never have put up with more. Though he has the praise of angels, he disdains not my sighs and my tears. And you, friend, how many mercies have you tasted Since those moments in your past where you thought this is it, he's left, he's done, how many, how much grace have you experienced and been sustained in and what's waiting for all of us in those layers of honesty is tasting more mercy? Listen, we needed him then We need him now, and he's ready with grace now. He's working in our lives now, forgiving, more patient with you than you are with yourself. Therefore, don't leave. Don't leave, stay put, remain, continue in the gospel, stable and steadfast, not shifting from this hope because it's here and it's only here. You won't find it anywhere else, but this Jesus who in your life because he loves you is taking you from where you were to where you will be, you are not who you are. And Jesus in all of his might and patience and love will not stop until you become who you will be. I'm remaining in that brothers and sisters. We love you Jesus, we thank you for your kindness and your grace and your mercy. I feel so acutely the things I don't know about what I don't know in the room right now. Feel so acutely, God, that I can speak about mercy, and I can speak about you meeting in honesty, and at the same time have no idea what that might mean for the brother or the sister listening right now, and you know everything. None of it is unknown to you, and you're working in it. God, would you, in your kindness, In your patience, would you do in a moment among us this morning what we have just read and heard and declared that you are not only able but delight in doing in the hearts of those who are your sons and your daughters. We love you. We're eager to worship you. I pray, God, for the one in the room where where they are in the contrast is they are only who they were that right now alienated and hostile from you and maybe in between uh, who they uh, were and who you want to make them in Jesus. Maybe in between that's a lot of questions. Maybe in between that's a lot of objections. I pray, God, that right now what you would place in between that is a cross in an empty tomb that invites from death to life and love brings home The lost brings home those who are searching. Father, it just seems so likely that in a room this size, there is one who needs to know that the circumstance therein is not wasted that they're not stuck, that you, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father holding all things together are not looking over the last month of their life, not looking over the last year of their life, not looking over them right now saying, I guess I'll just wait till they get out of this to keep working and keep loving and keep changing, but you're at work in ways that we can't see. And more than we need to see it, more than we need answers for it, we just need to trust you with what we don't know. And hold on and remain and stay in your grace and your love and in your mercy. You are kind to us and we need you. Amen.